Welcome to the Scandinavian Mind podcast. I'm Conrad Olsen, founder and editor-in-chief of Scandinavian Mind. Today we are revisiting a talk from the Transformation Conference, a fashion tech event we hosted together with Uni Communication in Helsinki on May 31st, 2022. In the midst of the most transformative period that fashion has ever seen, we wanted to explore how Finland and Sweden could deepen their impact on the industry together. Today we are listening to a live interview I did with Alec Leach, journalist and author of the new book The World is on Fire, but we're still buying shoes. Alec talks about why he wrote this book, his five definitions of what fashion is, including escapism, status and belonging, why transparency is important, and the difference between compulsive and conscious consumption. The Transformation Conference is a two-part event, and the second edition takes place in Stockholm on August 25th, 2022 during Nordic Fabric Fair. If you want to get an invite to that event, please make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. Visit scandinavianmind.com newsletter. I'd like to thank Helsinki Partners for making this possible. Here now, my conversation with Alec Leach from the Transformation Conference. Enjoy. Right now, I'm sitting here with Alec Leach, journalist and author of the new book, The World is on Fire, But We're Still Buying Shoes. This is a powerful uh, little scripture that you are uh, publishing yourself. Uh, I think, first of all, a little bit of a round of applause to Alec to start the interview. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Um, I ordered this online from your own website. We're going to yeah. talk about yourself publishing this. But Alec, you are an author. Uh, you previously uh, worked as a fashion editor at Heisnobiety. And you are fu- the founder of your new platform, uh, Future Dust. Let's just get into it. Why did you want to write this book? I basically felt that after years and years of going to sustainability conferences, um, the elephant in the room was always consumption. And everybody knows that the reason the fashion industry is so destructive is because the clothes are produced at such a high volume, and that's why the pollution, the CO2, everything is so, so, so catastrophic. And as a former fashion editor, like I spent five years on the fashion team at Heisnobiety, I felt that I could have a pretty good insight into why we shop so much. And that, to me, seemed like a really important question to ask because it's something that isn't really talked about as much in sustainability circles as I think it should be. I I, I highly recommend this book. And uh, what I really like about it is you have this kind of personal tone to it. And and you enter this subject on a really sort of no-nonsense, grounded way. Uh, And we're going to get into some of the the chapters and, 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 and stuff that you talk about. But because, you know... You, you spend a better part of the book talking about kind of the problem and in the end a little bit about the, the solution. Uh, and am I right in understanding that the solution is, put it simply, buy less, buy better stuff, take care of your, your clothes, uh, use them longer? Is, is, am I right there? Yeah, like 
I, sp I spend three, the book's only four chapters. Um, it's really short, and the first three are about why we buy so much stuff, and the last one is just about why we should buy it less, just because the answer is really simple, actually, and I didn't think it needed as much explaining. Um, you know, like, buy less, buy better, make it last is a real kind of cliche in sustainable fashion circles, but um, it's true, and... For me, it was really important to talk about consumerism in a way that felt like an opportunity, not guilt-tripping people, mm. which, again, is something that um, I think is a really big problem in sustainability circles, is people end up just, like, looking down their noses at people who shop at H&M, and that's, like, particularly problematic when you remember that so many people in fashion have a closet full of Prada, and it's like there's so many compulsive shopping habits in like expensive circles as well. You know, I was working for five years at a publication that was basically covering daily new sneaker releases. And so it was just really important for me to kind of frame it not just about fast fashion, because the problem is the entire industry, and also to frame it in a way that felt like it would be an opportunity, um, which is why I think buying less stuff is just a really good way of buying better. Mm. Well, even though it, it, it sounds like a cliche, we've heard it before, I think what you do in the book is you really put, you're putting nuance to it. And one of the things I really appreciate, in the beginning of the book, um, you talked about essentially what fashion is for the consumer. And many people can distill it down to identity, but you actually make it a little bit more granular. You talk about escapism, status, belonging, novelty, and, and stimulation. Uh, can we just go into some of these definitions? I thought they were, they were kind of new to me, the way you framed them, maybe some of them yeah. and, and perhaps so, all. So like when I was thinking about, about the book and thinking about the issues in it, I'd, every time you put like a microphone in front of somebody that works in fashion, they would always say like, well, fashion says a lot about identity and it's really fascinating because of that. And that to me just wasn't really enough. I was always thinking, like, well, what does it say about identity and what does it say about who we think we are? So I just thought I would dig really, really deeply into that, and that's why a lot of the, a lot of the references that I pull out in the book are kind of from... I have an interview from Christianity Today. Um, there's a section from, like, a Buddhist teacher. Um, there's a bit inspired by, like, Alain de Botton. Um, there's a lot more kind of philosophical things going on just because when we get dressed, we present an idealised version of ourselves mm. to the rest of the world, and that's quite a philosophical thing. And I ended up with those five different themes because that's just what I saw when I, when I really looked into it. And let's dig into some of these. Escapism. Why is fashion escapism? Um, because the world sucks and we want to pretend that it doesn't, I guess, would be the, the like, simple answer. But like, you know, pe people, people sh when people are shopping, they kind of imagine an idealised future where yeah. you know, you're head to toe in Margiela and everything's fine. Um, and that's kind of... A lot of the... Um, that resonated with the audience. We <laughs> <laughs> have a I lot mean, of fashion journalists here. <laughs> like, yeah, and that, that's, like, that's like one of, in my opinion, that's like a really big driver behind our shopping habits. And then yeah. there's, you know, status is the obvious one. Like, we want to show off in front of our friends um, while at the same time belonging, you know, feeling, mm. part, of, um, feeling part of a group. Um, 
novelty is just like I think there's just like a really old like monkey part of our brains that just like likes new stuff, and um, stimulation was about how it's really easy to buy things just to kind of uh, scratch the itch or to take the edge off. That dopamine hit. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. Fashion is almost like a social media that way, just yeah. craving the new, craving the hit. Yeah, for sure, for sure. A big part of the book is about the topic of, of uh, sustainability, and, and uh, I'm curious to hear your, your definitions about it. But you, I think what's interesting is you highlight the fact that people don't actually know how clothes are produced, like all the different steps, uh, and you go into this whole notion of... of uh, you know, made in somewhere, and that's not really true because there's a whole chain of things that happens before it's sort of made in a country. Uh, but but can you go through some of those steps? And because it seems important to you that people, consumers, have a better understanding about this. Yeah, I think you know it, it's a really really huge issue, not just with consumers in the industry in general, is that yeah. people just don't know how things are made, and there's a um, like ma marketing psychologists call um, call it friction, which is basically where you make you make buying something more difficult. So the reason we have like instant PayPal checkouts and free returns and really fast shipping is to remove friction to make shopping easier. And if you were to tell people exactly how clothes are made, that would introduce a lot of friction into the process, and mm. people would just probably buy less stuff because they would realize just how um, messy the whole system is. And the reason I talk so much about how clothes are actually made is because it's just another way that we end up sleepwalking into buying more things. Um, you know, for example, when you claim something is made in the USA or made in Italy, people assume that that means it's good, when really all it means is the very last step of a really huge industrial process happened in mm. Italy or the USA. And... You know, if you told someone that the product you were buying wasn't actually made in Italy, it was um, cotton grown in Uzbekistan, spun in Bangladesh, woven in Pakistan, dyed in India, printed in Morocco, cut and sewn in Turkey, and then had a label attached on it in Italy, that would seem... You, you don't get very excited about buying that, but that's like the reality of what happens. And um, for me, it was really important to kind of lift the curtain on that. Mm. What the, are, are you like hopeful or? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> why, is, why is that funny? <laughs> I don't know why is that funny. <laughs> okay. um, uh, humor to lighten the load. Um, a part of the, uh, the topic here today is we have companies that are uh, you, you know, wanting to put forward alternative ways of doing things, and what you put forward there is complexities because you have to communicate this and, or at least signal this to the consumer somehow. And, and what you're kind of what unveiling is there's so much complexity uh, and what you're saying essentially is the fashion brands have no incentive of adding this complexity to their marketing, mm. to their checkout process and so forth. Do you think we'll ever be in a situation where the, the fashion brands will add this onto um, their, their sort of sales and communication? Yeah, I mean... I don't think all of them will. I don't think all of them really need, need to. Like, there's a lot of brands out there that, um, you know, like the small independent designers that do really beautiful things. Like, I'm not sure if they, it's really up to them to fix the mm. fashion industry. But if, you, if we talk about big fashion, like the, you know, the really huge corporations at the top of it, then I don't know, like, 
The thing with greenwashing is it's just, it's so short-sighted in my opinion. And I think the fashion industry seems to think that everybody is going to want to buy mountains of clothes for the rest of their lives. And that even when consumers start to like actually feel the effects of climate change, because none of us have really felt the effects of climate change, mm. really. And that's only going to get worse. Um, I think the fashion industry is really kidding itself if it thinks that once we do start to feel the effects of climate change, people are still going to want to buy clothes from brands that have lied to them for 15, 20 years about it. And um, that to me is just a really, really short-sighted way of looking at it. Um, yeah. I'm curious, I mean, because I've been doing quite a lot of research on this as well, and when we produce stories for the magazine, you, I, I've always tried to figure out, find uh, kind of like the current state of the fashion industry. How much are we actually producing and so forth? And, uh, you know, some of, sometimes you find the number 130, 150 billion garments produced each year. I think you have the same kind of range in there. It's a little less, uh, perhaps. Uh, but the challenge here is there are no official numbers. Yeah. There's, there's nothing that, yeah. that shows what this industry actually, how big the impact is, yeah. is actually. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your process in trying to sort of grasp the, 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 the hugeness of it? Yeah, I mean, honestly, the hugeness of it was a really big reason that I decided to get into sustainability in the first place. Mm. Like, I would, you know, at my old job at High Snobiety, I would be in... I would do a not even that brutal fashion week schedule. Like I would just do the men's circuit. So it would just be London, Pitti, Milan, Paris twice a year, which for a lot of editors isn't really that bad. Mm. But like doing that was, I was so burnt out by all of the newness at the end of it. And what really blew my mind was that every single fashion week I went to, the center of every city was filled with stores that I'd never even heard of. Like I'd never heard of I don't know, there's a, there's a bunch of stores in Paris where I'd be walking past it and be like, I've literally never heard of this. And it's like, apparently a huge business that sells mountains of clothes every season. And um, that kind of, the kind of hugeness of the fashion industry was something that really kind of um, burnt me out by the end of it. Because you just end up thinking, what's this all for? But it, it, is it hard to find like hard data on how big the fashion industry yeah, is? Yeah, really hard. Um, you know, the, the number I quote in the book is I think between 80 and 150 billion yeah. garments in the year, which is... That's quite a big difference. Yeah, it's a really big difference. 150 is almost double 80, but yeah. um, you know, it's, the industry's so opaque and it's so difficult to get any hard data on anything that um, you can't make an accurate guess on it. And mm. It's just one of those things like, you know, anybody in sustainability will tell you you spend about 10 minutes thinking about something and it always comes back to the fact that our societies just don't regulate businesses enough. Right. This is what it always comes back to, right. in my opinion. Uh, there is some regulation happening you know, on the EU level. We'll get into that oh. later in this uh, um, program. Um, you now work as a writer, but you also advise brands on this topic of, of sustainability. Uh, I, I'm curious to hear your, what do brands want you to help them with and what do you help them with? I, I imagine those two are maybe not the same. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I mean, I, I would say I work more in transparency than sustainability just okay. because, you know, sustainability always comes down to the, the way we make things and the yeah. way we structure businesses and 
you know, I'm an editor, I'm a writer, like, I, I, that's not really what I do. It's more about how brands present themselves to the world. And, um, you know, for me, transparency is really about insurance in, in the, you know, if, if you don't lie to people about things, then when things get worse, they're not going to be able to, um, you're, you're kind of safe in that, in that regard, in that, like, like I said, the climate crisis is only going to get worse, and the brands that have lied about it for 10, 20 years, it's just going to... Fashion could easily end up having its like tobacco moment or what we're seeing happening to the fossil fuel industry where everybody just suddenly realises that this is a completely unethical industry and we don't want to have anything to do with it. So in, in my eyes, transparency is really about um, brands thinking in the long term and realizing that lying to consumers is not a good way of guaranteeing a future for your company essentially and um you know transparency only works when the brands are already doing something good in the first place so obviously you can't work with everybody when mm. um when you're thinking a bit like that but um yeah there are a few, a few spreads with uh, sort of uh, graphics and you, you um, point out uh, how much of uh, emissions that comes from supply chain versus the, the life cycle of the product and so forth. Uh, was there anything in, in, in amassing this research that surprised you in any way? I mean, I kind of knew most of it already, but like the... Um I think the, the really important thing to take away from that part of the book is that the fashion industry's biggest impact is making new clothes. And so much of what you see in the sustainability space is really about obscuring that. Mm. So, you know, the, the issue that people talk about all the time is like plastic packaging that things come in. And this is like, you know, this is like tiny compared to the impact of producing fabric. Or people right. will say all the time, like, oh, it's really bad. Um, you know, when people talk about fashion week, it's like, it's really bad that we have all these editors flying over from all over the world where this is like, you know, not even 1% of the impact of the fashion industry. It's just that the supply chain is so hidden mm. that we only really think about the things that we see, which is the packaging and um, the delivery and this kind of stuff. Well, that's actually a point you're making. I think that it's relevant to lift in this context because brands tend to highlight like one thing from this complex supply chain and they, sure. they sort of dangle that as a, as a symbol of, of their efforts, so to speak. Yeah, organic cotton's the best example of that, I think, where it's like, hey, we made this stuff out of organic cotton, therefore we're saving the planet. And it's like, all that means is there wasn't any pesticides used on the farm. It doesn't have anything to do with how that cotton was spun, woven, dyed, cut and sewn, printed, delivered. Like, all, there's all of these impacts that are hidden from view and you just go out there and say well it's organic cotton therefore it's good mm. it's just a um it's just a kind of embarrassing way of looking at it actually i think there's a lot of um there's a lot of greenwashing out there that is just um so cynical that um it's kind of embarrassing to look at it i once saw a really really big brand actually the really big like mid-level luxury brand that claimed the um when they were making their handbags, that because they used um, waste-saving um, cutting techniques, that was like a zero-waste initiative, when that's just what every single person working with leather does. Like, it, it, it's, it's ridiculous. Like, the sort of thing that these brands try and, try and do is just, like, completely absurd. And um, they're essentially treating their consumers like idiots. Mm. And I just don't think that's a good way of 
talking to your consumers. The last part of the book is called The Way Out, which I thought was an interesting phrase. It it's basically highlights, uh, I guess, some of the solutions or how to tackle this. Why did you decide to call it The Way Out? <clears throat> um, I guess like the, like for, for me, when you, when you care about what's happening to the planet and what's happening in the world, but you also care about um, you know, physical things and material things, it's really easy to have this huge cognitive dissonance and to sort of swing between thinking like, well, everything's doomed, so I don't need to care about anything, to feeling like I need to give up everything and go and live in, a, live in the forest. Mm. And um, whereas really, for me, the answer is just like, just buy less stuff. Like, just think about that when it comes to fashion. And that's a really simple way of looking at it because I think the answer is actually that simple. And if you have that really simple answer, it can really easily feel like an opportunity because it's like, okay, I can just buy stuff that I love instead of really compulsively chasing after trends, which I think is how a lot of people end up in this. You end up in this really dissatisfying cycle where you're constantly buying new things and constantly having to get rid of <coughs> old things. And um, that just doesn't sound like a fun way to live your life, actually. Um, and yeah, that's why it was so important to just frame it as a really, really simple way but out. But that was a really personal um, anecdote or reflection, and you made that distinction between buying stuff that you love versus chasing the hype cycle yeah. or the next big thing and so forth. Sounds simple and reasonable, but, but it's, I think for many people it's kind of hard to establish that pattern in your life, so to yeah. speak. How have you done it? Yeah, I, just, I basically just forcibly removed myself from looking at new clothes for a while. Uh, I, I, just, yeah. I just stopped. You forcibly removed yourself? Yeah, I, I just stopped caring about what GQ and Vogue thought was cool. Like, I, I just stopped following them, stopped l looking at new stuff on Instagram, stopped following street style, stopped following influencers. Like, I just removed myself from that for a while and um, just started asking, like, well, what do I want to wear? And how do I want to dress? And it's a lot more... Um, it's actually a much simpler kind of process than I think... You know, it seems really difficult because it's so inescapable, mm. but um, you really just have to... It takes a lot of self-confidence to say no to something that everybody else is doing, and I think um, there's a quote by Rachel Tashtian from GQ. She's at Harper's Bazaar now, but um, she talks about fashion being an opportunity to build your self-confidence, and I think that only really works when you are saying no to things that you don't want to do. And that for me is just like a really, it's been like a really healthy process. Just out of curiosity, has this changed the way you dress during this process of buying what you love versus kind of chasing? Not, not so much. Like the funny thing is, is I just realized that I just had a ton of stuff in my wardrobe that I never wore. Mm. And I spent loads of money on and I wore it like three times. And um, it's honestly not changed what I, what I wear that much. It's definitely changed... Shopping's a lot slower now, and it can take a really long time to find something that um, I really love. But when I do, I'm just really, really happy with it, so it feels great. So your wardrobe is smaller? Yeah. yeah. You, you talk about the difference between compulsive and conscious consumption. What do you mean by that? Compulsive consumption is just how the world wants us to shop, I guess. It's um, buying things really quickly. I like to go back to what I said about friction. It's about buying with zero friction. It's about seeing something, wanting it, and buying it straight away. And that is kind of the 
the ideal fashion consumer, I suppose. And I can't help but think that sometimes the reason fashion makes people so, feel so bad about themselves is because they will then buy things so compulsively um, because you just want to scratch the itch or you want to um, fix something that feels missing in your life. And um, I think it's just always a really, really dissatisfying cycle, that way of looking at it. And um, conscious consumption is just about thinking about what you really want and um, looking at it in a much more intentional kind of way. Alec, I want to end by asking about the way you operate right now. We're talking about sustainable business models, and you have actually decided to publish this yourself. Can you talk a little bit about your, your setup and why you're doing it? Yeah, um, so when I decided to do it, I thought that the two things were like, I wanted it to be in cool shops that I really liked and not on Amazon, and it also needed to come out really quickly after the pandemic. And... I did like a really small amount of research and it turns out like a conventional publishing deal wasn't going to be able to do either of those. And so I was just like, okay, I'll just self-publish it because I want it to be in really cool shops that I really like. And it needs to happen like after the pandemic, just because it's such a kind of relevant issue right now. And so I self-published it and basically like the whole project was kind of built from the ground up as a way of like, I just feel like most non-fiction books are twice as long as they need to be, and they all look the same, and they're all in a, you know, in a mountain of non-fiction books like on Amazon, and a lot of young authors end up in this position where like they've done a 300-page book that could have been 150, 200 pages, and then they release it, and then they have to tell everybody, hey, please buy my book, but please don't buy it on Amazon. But also, if you could give it a review on Amazon, that'd be really good because it's really good for the algorithm. Like, it's just, you just end up in this like, you just end up like caught in this um, in this machine that I just didn't really want to be in. And I wanted to do a book that was short. I wanted to do a book that was small. I wanted to do a book that was in really cool shops. I wanted to do a book that um, had a that like looked really really good. And it was just like, okay, if I front the money myself then I can do all of those things and hopefully it pays off. And because um, I was doing it all in the middle of the pandemic, I wasn't spending any money anyway. So I just kind of had, I could make it work. Mm. And um, it's really, really paid off actually. And it feels like this is just the way that I'm going to publish from now on. And it also, the margin is like five times what it would be if I was going through a conventional mm. publishing house. I just have to build the business myself. But because I wrote a really short book that's like a third of the length of most other people's books, I have the time to think about order fulfillment and Shopify and, you know, this kind of stuff. I'm trying to imagine your book, The World is on Fire, but we're still buying shoes in a cool shop next to shoes. Have you seen that? Sure. Yeah, I don't mind. Like, <laughs> as long as people buy it, I don't, I'm really not um, that bothered. But, like, the whole, like the, whole, the whole thinking behind it was, like, I know that so much of the conventional sustainability narrative, like, doesn't really make it into proper fashion and um, you know as someone that had worked as an editor for five years and had been to you know been to Paris Fashion Week you know twice a year um, for a really long time it just felt like doing a conventional sustainability book didn't really make sense and that there was a lot of potential for me to speak to people that might not normally think about sustainability mm. because so much of it's directed at fast fashion shoppers which is great and it's super important but um but I didn't really feel like what my audience was. Alec Glitch, journalist, author, thank you so much for sharing your insights Thanks. today. <clears throat>
Thank you. That was an outtake from the Transformation Conference in Helsinki in May of 2022. The Transformation Conference is a two-part event and the second edition takes place in Stockholm on August 25, 2022 during Nordic Fabric Fair. If you want to get an invite to that event, please make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Visit scandinavianmind.com newsletter. Until next time, goodbye.